Hey, everyone. Last week, I announced that I have launched my personal website, davidoleary.ca. And uh, if you visit there, within the first five, ten seconds, you should get a pop-up that uh, allows you to sign up for a mailing list. And I'm setting up this mailing list for people who are specifically interested in impact investing and want to be kind of kept in the loop on uh, announcements about things like, you know, new podcast episodes, but more importantly, uh, events, uh, the launch of new impact investments in Canada, um, any thoughts and articles that I publish. Um, I'd even like to create a bit of a, a sense of community around this. So, uh, you know, having opportunities when it's safe again to do so for people to meet and get together and learn about impact investing together. Uh, I very much view the podcast as letting people in on my journey of learning within the impact investment space. And uh, I view this mailing list in the, in the same manner. So if you sign up, I promise I will not be uh, spamming uh, your inboxes with anything other than content that I think people would be excited and interested to know about if they're learning and following impact investing. So again, davidoleary.ca. Also, just a personal appeal. If you've been listening to the podcast and you've gotten anything out of it, please, please, please go leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews help this podcast surface on SEO and Google searches and when people search for podcasts. And that is the whole point of the podcast is to spread awareness and education and help people who are trying to learn about this field to do so. And they can't do that if they don't know we exist. So I would deeply appreciate it if you do. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Welcome to the 21st episode of the Impact Investing Podcast. Newcomers to even the most welcoming countries face significant challenges. From language and cultural barriers to finding affordable housing, all the way to the mental health challenges of being alone in a strange new place. And supporting newcomers during this difficult transition is not only a moral imperative, but makes compelling economic sense. The better and more quickly newcomers adjust to their new home, the happier, healthier, and more productive citizens they will be. And while some of these barriers are difficult to solve, some are not. Nowhere is this more evident than the employment barrier faced by highly trained and educated newcomers. After all, how many of us have been in a cab or an Uber driven by someone who is an engineer or other high-income earning professional back home? Now, this can happen for a variety of reasons, but one is that many newcomers can't afford the necessary recertification or licensing necessary to find employment in their field of expertise here in Canada. My guest today is Claudia Hepburn, CEO of Windmill Microfinance. Windmill is a registered charity that provides loans of up to $15,000 to over 1,000 newcomers to Canada each year who are unable to afford the licensing or certifications necessary to find employment in their field of expertise. In this episode, Claudia and I discuss the challenges that newcomers to Canada face, the types of places and industries newcomers come from and work in, and how the organization's efforts lead windmill clients to see, on average, a tripling of their income and a 97% repayment rate. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end, where we discuss how the organization utilizes both charitable dollars and impact investment capital to fund all of this amazing work. So, Claudia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to come on. I've been familiar with Windmill from the days that it was known as the Immigrant Access Fund and had always, it was one of the earlier maybe impact investments in Canada that I was aware of. I think you've had a few 
um, bond issues uh, over time. And I, my, I also got my first kind of like interest in using my kind of skill set and background to make some sort of positive impact through microfinance um, in a developing world context. But so the kind of microfinance angle was more familiar to me and it was, you've been around for, for, for quite a while now. And the idea of just like the, the mission you're serving makes a lot of sense. So um, anyway, can you maybe introduce yourselves for the, the listeners and a little bit about uh, Windmill? Sure, thanks. So my name is Claudia Hepburn and I'm the uh, Chief Executive Officer of Windmill Microlending. And Windmill is a 15-year-old charity that's um, based in Calgary and Toronto and works nationally across Canada. And our mission is to empower skilled immigrants to achieve economic prosperity by providing microloans and supports. So we were founded about 15 years ago by, um, by a woman whose name was Maria Erickson, and she was a psychologist, and she was uh, uh, who had her office in the basement of a hospital, um, Foothills Hospital in Calgary. And she'd be working late, like so many of us do, and uh, speak to the cleaning staff who'd be emptying her trash. And so when she was speaking to them, she'd ask, you know, where are you from? Um, what did you do before you came to Canada? And she became so frustrated when the third one said that she was an internationally trained healthcare professional. And Maria said, stop, this is ridiculous. You've got, why are you not practicing medicine here in Canada rather than cleaning the hospital? And they would say, well, I would love to, but I, I can't afford to feed my family on the survival level salary and, and save the five or $10,000 that's needed to challenge the exams to become a nurse or a, or a doctor or a physiotherapist or, um, here in Canada. And so most of us would say, you know, when meeting an Uber driver who tells us that he's an engineer or, you know, a, or a neuroscientist, we say, oh, that's really too bad. What a waste. And then, then go on with our lives. But not Maria. She got uh, six women around her kitchen table, her best girlfriends, who were also interested in, in, the, in equality and social justice and um, the, the cause of immigrants. And she said, couldn't we solve this problem if we just got... 20, raised $25,000 and made five loans to these five women. And then they would get the funds, they'd be able to requalify, they'd get a way better job, and they'd be able to repay the loan, and we could lend it out to somebody else. And so that's how Windmill got started. Amazing. Um, and how long ago would you say that was? That was... That was 15 years ago. 15 years ago. And it, it it's a registered charity, is that right? That's right. Okay, so... A registered charity, but you're kind of making use of market-based approaches to solving the problem. I guess one in terms of lending, lending to your clients rather than granting money. That's um, right. And then two, in that you have issued bonds in the past where people can make an investment that pays them a rate of return, and then presumably you're using that capital to essentially extend loans. I'm imagining maybe some other things as well, but. Yeah, so the, the the financing of Windmill has developed over time. So it started out with with you know with the raising twenty five thousand dollars of of money that they could could be lent out. Um, they got charitable status, and then they could get donations, and they got grants from the Alberta government. And they very quickly got a group of Calgary business leaders together who came up with the the first innovative idea, which was to offer guarantees. So the Calgary business leaders guaranteed a line of credit at the bank that could would then um, give Windmill, which was formerly known as Immigrant Access Fund, access to a much a broader pool of capital than, than they could raise in donations. So the donations were then used to provide, cover the, and grants from government were provide, used to provide the operating costs for the charity, but the line of credit and it was used to supplement grants that came in um, in order to increase the, the amount of funds that were available for to be, to be lent to the skilled immigrants. And those loan guarantees are, are, are essentially reducing your cost of borrowing, right? Because you can- That's right, you know, that's right. Because, the, because RBC would not give us a $6 million line of credit without um, without both. So we use both the collateral of the loans that we're doing and, um, and the guarantees. Right. Right. Okay. From high net worth guarantors. When was the, when was that first, uh, like, was it the Alberta government that was first, uh, guaranteeing? Uh, no, the, no government has been part of the guarantee okay. guarantor model. Those have all been high net worth individuals and foundations. Okay. Um, I was going to say, yeah, that sounds pretty that. progressive. Um, and when was yeah. that, when did that first happen? 
that type of so that happened that happened um in the first in the first few years of years that the organization was going yeah. and then much more recently we've developed a community bond program so um in order to so uh, when i joined the organization three and a half years ago we had the six million dollar um line of credit and our our loan book was about five and a half million and so we had about four million dollars that had been granted to us that we were lending out so we were using about two million dollars of the six million dollar um line of credit but we knew that we had to do something something more if we wanted to you know really dramatically increase the size of our loan book which was has been my goal my goal has been to um to scale up by tenfold so go from $5 million of, of loans to $50 million or go from 400 new clients a year to 4,000 new clients a year is my goal. Yeah. And so I thought, how else are we going to generate capital? And I was approached by, by Adam Spence at the um, Social Venture Exchange. And he said, have you ever thought about doing, um, you know, doing a community bond? And I was like, I, I would love to think about doing that, but I have no idea if there are investors out there who would be willing to lend um, to us for significantly less than we're borrowing at from RBC. Because not only did I want to, um, to grow it, but I also wanted to reduce our costs of borrowing. And I didn't know at that time, so this was, this was um, three years ago, 2017, if there would, was going to be significant interest from people willing to, to borrow at a GIC-like rate of return um, um, you know, and lend money essentially to a, to, um, you know, a small charity. That had, but had a loan book where we have a highly diversified pool of, um, of, of, of clients who are borrowers, diversified by geography across Canada, by professional group, um, and, and you know, no one is borrowing more than, at this time, $15,000. Right. And, and a long track record of, of high repayment rates. and Yes. Yes. And so, the, so what we could boast was an extraordinarily high level of, of social impact. We can tell you that, you know, we, our average client, our income multiplies by three and a half times as a result of a $10,000 loan. We know that we have, um, our historical average has been 97% um, repayment rate. We're now well over 98% repayment rate. Um, and so, um, you know, you know, you're guaranteed a really high social impact, but, and you know, you're guaranteed a very low financial return, but hopefully we can, we can offer um, a pretty good, uh, pretty low risk that your capital is not going to be returned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I am, and I'm, I'm excited. There's a lot, I have a lot of questions that are popping to my mind as we, as we go um, through all of this. Um, so, so just to sort of recap, like you guys are essentially extending loans to newcomers to Canada who have some sort of professional certification accreditation qualifications from abroad that don't translate here that need some sort of they have to pass some sort of examination that sort of qualifies them here to practice medicine to practice law to practice whatever those that profession is and it usually has a cost associated with doing that and you're lending to them so that they can pay that and start practicing what they were sort of highly educated to do. Yes, the problem we're trying to solve is that, uh, or the opportunity that we're taking advantage of is that Canada brings in about 300, 350,000 immigrants a year, of which the majority are economic class skilled, skilled immigrants. Um, many of them get stuck in underemployment and poverty because they, they don't come, that when they arrive in Canada, they don't have access, um, they don't have credit history in Canada. Many of them don't come from countries where they understand credit the way we do and practice um, credit the way we do. Um, so they are they have to build build a track record in order to borrow at reasonable rates. Um, and and if you are earning uh, an income that puts you in the in the well into the poverty line, our average client is generally sort of twelve to fifteen thousand dollars of income. Uh, when they come to us, um, you know, it's very hard to escape that long-term poverty trap. Mm -hmm. So we are we are lending to people either now either to get reaccredited in to what they were before. So if you were a nurse, become a nurse or or a you know medical technician, um, or but we've extended it now so that if, if you have a for instance we had people that came to us and they said I was brought into Canada because I'm a petroleum engineer and Canada needed petroleum engineers. Now there are obviously no jobs in petroleum engineering and I'd like to get into data science or 
you know, something where you've got a skilled engineer. I'm pretty confident that I would be happy to lend this person money to go into a field where there are thousands of empty jobs, you know, job vacancies. So I think that's really bad. And so we've extended it. Or for instance, we often will find that there are people that um, know that they could take up a job if only they could relocate to the place where the job was, but maybe they don't have the savings to move their family there. So we're doing relocation loans now as well. Wow. So we're looking at ways that we can expand this, this um, highly successful model of combining affordable credits with the coaching supports to help people, um, to help people you know, achieve long-term prosperity. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, do you do you have a sense for like out of the three hundred and fifty thousand newcomer you know immigrants to Canada that Canada takes in each year, like what percentage of those, if you had unlimited resources and all of them, you know, like what percentage of them are are kind of the types of um, newcomers that you're that you think would be like in a position. Sh- dealing with the issue that you're trying to solve that you could like you could solve the help kind of help them solve that problem or take advantage of that opportunity as you put it well we're still working on we're still working on getting really um, precise numbers on that it's it's hard to tell and even it doesn't seem as though governments have a really really tight handle on exactly what numbers those are because we don't know for instance what percentage um will of of the economic class would need to borrow. Or it also depends, do you catch somebody when they first arrive in Canada and they haven't spent all their savings? But most people um, you know, will, will spend a lot more than they expected to. So they may need it at one point if they didn't need it at another point. Mm-hmm. But we are in our, our sort of back of the envelope calculation is that, um, is that we should be able to grow easily to 4,000 new loans a year. And that would be 2,000 a year in Ontario a thousand a year in in um, in Quebec, Alberta, and and British, or five hundred a year in Quebec, Alberta, and British Columbia, and um, and five hundred in in all the other provinces together. Wow. But we're, we we think that there may be other applications for this model that would expand our ability to help. You know, perhaps we could expand to at uh, some point to help um, help uh, Canadians who were born here who are, have trouble. Um, and needs who don't have access to affordable credit in order to escape long-term poverty and put their skills to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd love to d- dive into that as well a little more, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll save that. Uh, I'll keep that question on hold for now. Um, so you mentioned um, your goal when you came in was to kind of 10 X the, um, the loan book and the number of clients. Um, how long ago did you join? Was it 20? But just uh, 2017. 2017. So over right. three years ago. And um, tell us a little bit, like, where were you? Can you give us a little bit of your background? Like, how did you get to where you, it, it, to Windmill? And, where, where, you know, where did you come from? And kind of what were your background of experiences? As we were chatting about kind of on the on the call before the, the podcast, it, all of us come from a different, you know, uh, place and have been you know, usually pretty interesting backgrounds. So I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, and you you raised such a good point that everybody that is in this field of impact investing has has come from another another place, and that's one of the things that makes um, makes the people that are in here so in this field so interesting. Uh, so, I I've always been really thought of myself as more of a social entrepreneur who's focused on on human capital development. So I trained first as a teacher and I d- decided to train as a teacher, um, not because I wanted to be a public school teacher or a teacher all my life, but because I've, I had felt that having some really, um, really great educators had, had had a transformational impact on, on my life. And so, and I loved the idea. And when my parents, I came from an affluent background and when I was struggling in school, my parents were able to look around and move me out of a public school into a private school. And I, um, so I was able to benefit from educa- educational choice and, um, and the innovation and, and diversity that's offered by, by private schools. But it seemed to me really unfair that, uh, that uh, families that didn't have the means to pay for private school tuition couldn't have the same access to educational opportunities that would provide a level playing field. So I, when I, once I trained as a teacher, I became really, fr- and I did some practice teaching in the, um, as, a, as, a, as a student teacher in the, in the public schools. And I was told that anybody that was interested in innovating 
always left the public school system. And that just seems so wrong to me. If you're gonna, if you're gonna push out people who are looking for ways to change and improve a system, you're gonna get, um, you're gonna get, you know, a real, um, you know, a very unhealthy environment. And that's, I think, unfortunately, why we don't see as much dynamism in the public education system. So I really wanted to change that and so I looked around at different models for delivering public education that were going on in the rest of the world. And I, I found out about models in Sweden and Denmark and New Zealand where there was um, public funding that went to the parents' choice of school. And that seemed like a really interesting idea. And I, I really wanted to build a model like that for the first time in Canada because I thought if we can empower lower-income families to have the same educational options as wealthy families, we're going to create a much more dynamic um, system that where, where the public school is going to improve as well and, and, and we'll have a lot more um, innovation across the whole system. So that was an idea that I worked on for 10 years and I built the first, um, the first uh, privately funded school choice program. So we, we um, empowered um, a couple of thousand um, families living below the poverty line to send their children to their, um, their parents' choice of, of private school. And we measured the results of that and um, it had a tremendously beneficial impact on, on, on the children um, who, who attended. Um, but it wasn't an, it was a very expensive model to provide. And there was, um, you know, there was, there was a lot of hostility towards helping even a very small number of children, um, to, to leave the public system. It was seen as being hostile to the public system, unfortunately. Um, so I did that for a while and it, it seemed like it was not going to be something that was going to be able to develop into a much more successful, um, scaled model, which was what I, my hope in my hubris of my twenties, I had this idea that it would be, it would be possible to develop an innovative model that would be adopted by the public system. And therefore we could, you know, improve the lives of millions of school children across Canada. So it wasn't that easy. So I looked, so I really wanted to, I was, um, I, I'd spent 10 years uh, working for a think tank where I developed that model, writing, publishing and, 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 and developing that model. Um, and then I realized I wanted to start my own education charity. And so I looked around, took some time off and looked around for other innovative models where I thought we could really help both the individuals who benefited and help Canada. And I, I started a, a charity called The Next 36. It's now called Next Canada. And the goal of that organization was to develop the next generation of high impact entrepreneurs by taking really bright young people coming out of their first degree involve um, giving them mentors and and um, professors who would teach them the fundamentals of building a business and we would bring in investors so those was another opportunity we brought in social impact investors to invest in their businesses and um, hopefully and that was in 2009 2010 we were starting that mm -hmm. with the idea that we could help bring Canada out of the out of the recession of 2008 by stimulating more high impact entrepreneurship in this country so I built that for the first five years and um, had a great time doing that. But then I realized that I wanted to, what I really wanted to do was find an organization, an education, um, human capital uh, uh, based organization that I could scale. And so that's when I, I came across um, Immigrant Access Fund, now Windmill Micro Lending, uh, which was at that point a 12 year old charity that had this brilliant model that had this huge impact both on on the on the the clients who use the loans and on on all of Canada because we're filling labor market shortages we're promoting you know an inclusive prosperity and um, having all kinds of beneficial impacts both for government and communities as a result so um, it, it seemed like a, a really great fit and I was also really be, was becoming much more interested in social impact investment as a tool for lever for you know really increasing the power of philanthropy um, by bringing more dollars into the system and 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 using the the principles of the market um, in in new and you know slightly modified and enhanced ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, do you do you remember when you were like? It, it seems to me that the there's a common thread through this that like even from your very early career you were interested in the impact of what you were doing in terms of you know like developing human capital um, yes and i i know for me at least and some of us in this space you know i was just doing what i found interesting and i could make you know decent living off of but not it wasn't so much for me anyway like oh i'm 
you know, what is this having a benefit on the world around me? And, and I started to appreciate that over time, but is that something that like, what do you attribute that to? Do you, was this something that you were always thinking of or were you becoming more aware of it over time? No, I was always really driven by that. I'd, I had some great role models in my family who had um, made, made, um, made big contributions through their professions um, and through, and through philanthropy. So I saw, I was, I was really interested in the role that philanthropy played and I saw the need for more innovation in, in, and innovative leaders in, in driving creative solutions through not-for-profit um, organizations. So I was drawn to it by that. And I was, and I always, I, because I'd had, you know, some really great role models early in life, I really believed in the power of the individual to be able to make a difference in improving the world. And, um, and I was really driven to, you know, be somebody who I felt like I could take risks and take a crack at doing something super exciting. And it would be way more fun to try and make a big impact and fail than to just do something to make a living. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Um, you mentioned that again, I, I just, before I forget this question, the, the name changed from immigrant access fund to windmill. What year was that? And why, why the change? So when I joined um, the organization, I was hired to scale the organization up. Okay. And uh, so I asked the question, it was known as IAF Canada or IAF. And so I said to people do like, do you, are you, do you like the name? Are people happy with the name or should we look at rebranding? And it, it was universally felt on the board and in the, in the staff that we needed to change the name because nobody was thrilled with the, with the three letter acronym. And people felt like, although it seems like it's supposed to be a descriptive name, it didn't, wasn't clear to anybody it was serving what, it, what actually we were doing with the, with this fund. Um, so, uh, so we went through a rebranding exercise and we landed on windmill micro lending because we liked the idea of the windmill as a symbol for, you know, taking one form of energy and, and harnessing it and turning it into something far more productive. And, uh, we like that renewable dynamic, um, symbolism and, yeah, uh, and, you know, micro lending is, is that's what we do. And yeah. So talk a little bit more then about the, you, you mentioned scaling up was one of the things, but what you, so you take over in 2017, you start to get familiar with the organization, where they've come from, where they're, you know, where they're at now and where they need to go. And what are you seeing at that time? And what have you been working on um, since then? So when I started um, there, we had this beautiful track record of 97% repayment rate, um, tripling people's incomes. Uh, but it was the charity was operating as very much more of a grassroots, paper-based, local um, organization that didn't have uh, didn't have um, any marketing skill sets, didn't have any de- um, you know development fundraising um, skill sets. We um, there was a lot of um, of operational work that the board was doing. So we my goal was re- um, and my direction from the board was to like let's turn this into a governance board and let's get the skills involved on the team where we can really we we can really grow this into serving not hundreds hundreds of people but thousands a year or so. Um, so I did a lot of a lot of um, hiring for my uh, my leadership team in those early days. Um, my board chair, while I was doing all that that restructuring, was saying, "I think you should think about developing a social a social impact investing investment product, Claudia." And I was like, "I've got enough on my plate, lady. I don't know why you're why you're pushing this thing. I don't even know what you're talking about, really." And uh, then Adam Spence came to me. And I'm like, I think this is what this is what uh, Laura Wood, my board chair, was was uh, talking about. So that was that was a very early um, early uh, focus was developing that and just seeing where it would go. And so we've raised about nine million dollars with that um, with that community bond to date in the past. So that was about over the past two years, and um, it and it feels like it's it's really gaining momentum. That there's thanks to the work that you and you and people like um, Social Venture Exchange and Rally Assets and so many others in this in this ecosystem are are doing that. Uh, there, there really is going to be much more interest in these products. Yeah, for sure. And so is that bond issue still open on listed on the SVX? I haven't been on recently. To- uh, we are not on the SVX anymore anymore, unfortunately. But the but we absolutely are still still raising money through okay. it. Yes. 
And so what- yeah, so We're talk, just doing it directly. Okay. And talk a little bit about the terms uh, of the um, investment offering, if you can. Like what's the- Yeah. So, so we, it's a promissory note that yeah. we offer in one, three, and five-year terms. Yeah. And it's, uh, we're offering 1.3% for a three-year term and 1.8% for a five-year term. Okay. And do you find, so like most of your investors are, would you say like foundations and high net worth individuals? Yes. We have a few corporations uh, that we're working with, but the majority are, we've got lots of community foundations, um, quite a number of private, private family and charitable foundations and high net worth individuals. Yeah, it's on the on the website, and you can see kind of a list of donors and supporters of the the investment side, and it's a lot of the the, the usual uh, suspects in, in in Canada, which is both nice and and also you know it still reminds you of how small the industry here is in Canada, and there's a lot of room for it to to grow. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I know the community foundations have been a big. Um, big early supporters of the impact investment movement. And I saw a bunch of them listed there. So that's great. Um, and and are, do you find it challenging to comp- like, it's funny enough. I mean, we're, you know, my work at world vision, we had a similar kind of promissory note paying it's a fixed three year term paying 3% interest. And, and, you know, that's not the most sensational, um, you know, rate of return. Um, and depending on your perception of the risk involved, um, uh, you know, you might deem that to be a, you know, um, either a great risk adjusted return or, or not a particularly great one. Um, we thought it was pretty good. And, and I think our lending inherently came with more risk because it was overseas. But um, do you find it challenging? Because I, I like a lot of that when you're going up against impact investments that may be, you know, kind of green bonds or things like that, where you know, you're paying a four or five, 6% rate of return. Is that challenging or the people coming to you are like they primarily about the impact. And so the rate of return is kind of incidental to the, the decision. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. And um, you know, we're, we're constantly thinking about are, are, are these uh, rates the right rates and, or should we raise them or lower them? Um, we've been, you know, we're in the position that we don't want to, we don't, we can only raise what we can lend out. So we don't, if we had $50 million tomorrow that we could, we could borrow, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't have the clients to raise it out. So we have to keep the two, um, the, the growth of our clients and the growth of our investors going up at the same rate. And we've been fortunate to really have our, have the, have that work out that those rates uh, have been the right amount for that have, you know, given us the amount of money that we've needed. We've yeah. just recently reduced those rates. They were, they, up until, up until this month, they were, it was 2% for a five-year bond. We've just cut it to 1.8% because we are getting more demand um, currently from investors than we can, um, than we can, than great. we can use. And so that's great. Um, we're hoping that uh, people will still continue to continue to invest at those amounts, but we're finding that, um, that really it's it, a lot, a lot of times it's people that are more driven by the impact than by the desire to grow their capital. And that, that makes sense. You know, this is never not going to, you're not going to get rich quick with this, but I think a lot of people, um, who are, you know, more on the, on the, more on the investment side and less on the philanthropic side, they look at our, they look at our balance sheet and they recognize that we are, we are, have a very low leverage compared to, um, a lot of other, you know, a traditional financial institution. We've got a lot of donations that we are lending out. So, and also we have this long track record and a very high repayment rate and a highly diversified loan book, which makes us, um, you know, less risky than at first blush, you would think, oh, a little charity that's lending out money. That sounds super risky. But um, so, and I think that the world is is developing and there are more and more people that are saying, you know what, I, I like to, I want to get involved with this organization because I want to see the impact. And maybe I want to test out whether this is an organization I'd like to support philanthropically. And so a way to dip my toe in the water here is to make an investment and see if I'm happy with the way they're managing my money, the way they're reporting to me, the way they're engaging with me. And so, um, you know, we have some investors who I think are in that camp as well. Yeah, I, um, it, I find it interesting and 
I mean, not, not surprising, but it frustrating in some regards that you have people who are either perfectly willing to just give away all of their money for a you know, tax receipt, but still at the end of the day, you're net out of pocket. <laughs> um, so you're just going to 100% loss or they just flip way to, right to the other end of the spectrum, which is, oh, it's an investment and now I need to maximize my rate of return, my risk adjusted rate of return and sure if I can do some good. Or, and even people who want to, you know, genuinely want to do some good with their investments and might be willing to, to take a, a lower, you know, rate of return to make a more positive impact. There's kind of, it's, you know, it's, it, it's a sell and they're still like, you know, conscious of it. They're still kind of anchoring to, okay, well, how much return am I giving up here? And so it's either I 100% financial loss and I give it all away, or I try to really just like as much return as I can get for it, you know, impact adjusted return and everything in between, which could, you know, is just completely um, sort of forsaken as a, as a possibility. For instance, you know, I don't need any return. I, instead of giving it all away, I, I, I can't, you know, I can't give this money away, but I can do with no return to, you know, even if I got 80% of my money back, okay, great. I've given a 20% donation and they've used hundred percent of my capital for just a 20%, you know, do, donation. Like there's a whole spectrum in between that people are ignoring. And I think foundations, the most progressive foundations are doing a much better job of, of is kind of recognizing that these aren't two separate um, independent activities that we're doing, granting and investing, it's all using capital. And what's the most efficient way to use capital to, you know, deliver the impact and what's the best way to structure that, that, that. Um, and so uh, I think we're a long way before we get just collectively more and more people thinking as a spectrum rather than a isolated separate activities. Right. Absolutely. I, you articulate that uh, very well. And I think the more I think I'm hopeful that a generation from now we'll have more people that have been trained in finance by people who think like you um, and like Bill Young and all the all the leaders in this in this industry who are paving the way. Because right now, 99.9 percent of people in finance have been trained to think maximize your investment return. And if you want to be philanthropic, give away from the from the pool. So we're just, it's, that's just part of the fun of our job is to help, help, uh, help re-educate people that there are, there are more ways to think about um, being creative and making an impact in the world with your capital. Yeah, yeah. But we'll get there. I know my goal is to, is to keep being, is to get away with offering as low a financial um, uh, return as possible. Um, because I think it would be, I'd love to get to a point where we've got people investing at zero at 0% return because they know that this is, that Canada is going to be a better place. We're all going to be more affluent when our, our newcomers are, are, you know, filling the labor market shortages that we have who are not, you know, um, depending on, on government largesse in order to, you know, pay their rent and feed their families. That, that they're able to live the lives that, that we sold them when we said, come to Canada, we want skilled people here. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, I, we, could, we could riff on that for a while, too, because there's a lot of interesting uh, material in, in that, in that uh, subject. But I, I'd love to just dig into a little bit more, like, the, the lending that you're doing, the people that you're helping. So what professions are they typically, or is it sort of they're coming primarily from four or five different professions, or is it really pretty diversified? What types of places are they coming from? Um, just talk a little bit more about the challenges, and, and in particular, like the challenges they might face. So so is, is it always just like, oh, if I just had $5,000, and that it's as simple as that, or it's more complicated than that? Oh, so great set of questions. So um, what professions do our clients have? So they have of lots of different professions, but about 60, just over 60% of them are in the healthcare field. So, um, you know, in this uh, pandemic where we have so many labor market shortages in healthcare, it's particularly Mm important. It's particularly important because we have so many nurses, um, you know, pharmacists, doctors, uh, uh, epidemiologists in our portfolio. Um, we also have a lot of scientists. So we have a lot of engineers, IT professionals um, in, our, in our portfolio and finance people. Um, so the, the, the beauty about our portfolio is it's, uh, people are looking to get reaccredited in areas where we have job market, where we have labor market shortages. And so they're not, that's why, that's why our portfolio does so well and that's why our clients do so well. Mm. 
And where are they coming from? So we have got, we have clients that have come from 130 different, 135 different countries. Um, the top four are India, the Philippines, Nigeria, and Iran. Uh, we also have a pool of uh, refugees. And so we have refugees from, oh, I think maybe something like 50 different, something like 50 different countries. And, uh, you know, that changes, that ch changes every couple of years, depending on, on where the crises in the world are happening. Interesting. And you asked me another question. Yeah. And, and then, so is it, is it always the, is it always the case that it's just like, Oh, I just need X number of dollars to pass some sort of equivalency. I, you may, aside from, you mentioned some people are just retrain, you know, getting certain sort of new training for transferring skills, but in the case where they're just, transferring an existing skill set, are there additional challenges? Yeah, so clients come to us um, in a variety of stages of preparedness and, and certainty. So some clients will say, you know, I was a nurse in my home country, I wanna become a nurse. I know the, here the, here's the course I wanna take, here's the amount of money I need, that's all I need. Other, other clients will um, have, have real challenges with um, financial literacy. And so, and maybe they'll have less clarity about, you know, what exact program they want to do. So our coaches always spend about, about 40 minutes, 45 minutes with an interview, interviewing our clients to understand where they are and what supports from us they'll need, whether they'll need a mentor. We started a mentorship program last year where we connect often former clients of Windmill who are in the same profession as the, as the new client um, who can help them navigate the landscape, make professional connections, you know, help them with, with interview preparation, um, those kinds of things. And, um, or we'll connect them out to other resources, either employment resources in the community or financial literacy training modules that they can do online free or any other kinds of local supports that are, that are provided by, by sector organizations. Um, so that, because we're not trying to be an all service um, agency, we're trying to be a best in class organization that does, does really one thing, which is provide microloans and supports um, to, and then connect out to the, to the wider um, group of supports in the, in the, in the communities. Is, is it often the case that they, that individuals, I mean, maybe it just, it's all over the, the, the spectrum, but where there's more education that's needed, some additional courses or some, you know, so, so it's, it's, it's not just a simple, like, Hey, I've just got to pass this sort of transfer examination. I've got to actually do a few more things. Um, yeah, so it depends on the totally on the on the on the on the individual client and their what their what their professional goals are and where they are. You know, for instance, if if you were an inter internationally trained dentist, you would have four really tough exams, um, most of which have no more than a fifty percent pass rate, and you got to buy a whole set of tools. And you probably, if you want to be in the in the fifty percent that passes each exam, you probably want to take a prep prep course that's going to be expensive. So we'll help people map out how much they're going to need at each stage in order to pass that, how much time they're going to need in order to study. And so, and uh, what are they going to do to pay, pay for all their other costs of living? Because, because our loans max out at $15,000, it's not enough for, for our clients to stop work for six months, right? And live off right. that. It might be enough if they need to study for a month and not work for that month before the exam. So our, but our funds are really flexible. We'll help people. It's not just for the cost of exam or, or tuition. We'll also help people if they need the money to pay for childcare expenses, or if they need the money, you know, one, one of our favorite stories was the client outside Edmonton who, who was doing a course in the winter and his tires were bald on his car. So we, we, we said, it's fine for you to use the money to buy new snow, buy snow tires, because we want you to get to the, we want you to get to class safely. Um, so, you know, we're very, our funds, one of the beauty about our funds is that they're, they're super flexible. And we encourage our clients to think holistically about what they're going to need in order to be successful. The other thing that's, uh, that is unique about our, our loans is that if people run into trouble, for instance, they'll, it, our clients will always start with a you know well-mapped plan for how they're going to accomplish their goals and what the timetable is going to be. But if you fail your exam, or if you lose your, your survival job, or if your spouse or a family member gets really sick, you may, you know, you may get off track and you may not be able to repay your loan on the schedule that, that, um, that we had mapped out together. And so 
um, windmill loans are flexible. So we'll help people. We say, let us know before you miss a payment and we'll help you restructure your loan. Because at the end of the day, what we're interested in is not that you repay it on a certain date, but that you are successful with your, with your learning plan and you repay your loan eventually when, when, you, when you're able to do that. Right. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. D- d- um, is there any, I mean, you mentioned that sort of connecting to other service, the other service providers for other services that they need rather than you trying to provide all those things. But is there, is there some sort of level of coaching involved or just sort of what you're talking about in terms of helping them map out, you know, what they're going to need when they're going to need that money. That's sort of like the advice side of what you do. Yeah. So each one of our clients is 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 paired with one of our client success coaches, and that coach um, gives interviews them at the beginning, and and the, all our coaches are trained to be really good, um, have a structured, empathetic um, set of questions that where that we can they can really build a relationship with our clients, and um, and and so that they become they become a trusted resource for the client that the client can come back to at any point um, in the program. In, in their loan and we can, and that client can either help them themselves and they often do, but you know, the, the coaches might check in on somebody after when they were having an exam and say, Hey, you know, I'm thinking about you with your exam this week, you know, good luck. Let me know how it goes. So that they feel, so that they feel that they have this trusted resource that, that has, its, uh, you know, a great knowledge set that is, is helpful to them during this period of their life, but who can also, um, you know, serves as a triage function and can refer out to other resources um, as, as needed, because it may be that, you know, that, that client needs a specific um, set of counseling in, in some area or networking or training. So we, you know, we work cooperatively with depending on what's required yeah oh, interesting um so what what like what's a typical loan term look like i know it varies probably depending on on the client but are they typically like one year are they typically five years does it have do you have an average kind of yeah so our 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 maximum learning plan is two years so a client can be in in interest so a client will take a loan and it will be interest only while they're in the duration of their learning plan. And then 90 days after they finish their learning plan, it, it, it moves to interest plus principal. So that means that the average term of, of a loan is just over three years um, between, um, between when it's activated and when it's repaid in total. But it could be as much as four or five years for the most expensive loans that are, are over a long, longer period of time. Okay. Um, and then what's the, the interest rates? Do they vary depending on the individual or are they? It's, they're always prime plus one and a half percent with the exception of refugees. Um, convention refugees are interest free. Oh, wow. Awesome. So we are not like a typical lender where we ratchet up your interest if you're high risk. That would not be the philosophy of Windmill because our goal is to lend to high risk clients. And um, we think that we're exacerbating somebody's problem. If, uh, you know, if they, if they already have a lot of debt, we either decide that, you know what, you need to work on your debt and bring your debt levels down before we will lend to you, or we will lend to you and we'll help you um, develop better practices around debt management and refer you to resources and, and check in on you um, and, uh, and hope to help you be successful with it. Yeah. Okay. That's it. That's interesting. Um, and you mentioned there's 15,000 the max. Is that like to an individual over a lifetime or like at any one, re- like if they repaid that and needed more beyond that, because there's a series of things that they need that they can then once they've repaid that receive another loan. Does that That's a great question. Yes. So up until a year ago, it was just, it was one, one loan for a lifetime and our ma- our cap used to be $10,000, but now it's $15,000. And if you repay that and you have another learning plan you need, uh, you need to do, uh, we'll, we'll lend you some more money. Cool. Okay. Um, so I'm just trying to remember here. I've got a, a few questions. Um, the, um, I guess actually one area I wanted did want to cover is impact measurement and management. How do you think about that? And can you t- talk a little bit about how you tackle it? About, so, yeah, we try and keep it pretty simple because, uh, you know, I think that it's, 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 we believe one of our key values is simplicity. And so we focus, our biggest metrics are 
how much are we increasing people's income and what's our repayment rate? And uh, we also look at things like employment and field versus underemployment and field. And so we measure, we measure a few key things. Um, we're also trying to, we're always trying to create um, efficiencies so that we can scale because it's an expensive, we're, we're never going to be a low cost loan provider. We're um, by design, very hands-on and supportive. And because our goal is to take people that um, for-profit financial institutions um, cannot make profitable and we, we want to turn, you know, people that are considered bad clients for, for banks into good clients for banks so that they can go on and, um, you know, take advantage of other uh, reasonably priced loan products in future. So um, we're trying to bring down, but we're trying to bring down our cost of, um, of our programs and our cost of client acquisition so that we can become more effective and so that we can spend our resources, more of our resources on things that are going to increase our client success rather than on administrative or, you know, our other low value things to our clients. Yeah. Um, I, I, on that note, like what, what do you see as like the long-term solution to this problem? Is it windmill and other types of entities continuing to serve this because this is a gap or like, Hey, we're proving that this is, that this is actually a viable client that our financial institutions should should be lending to. Their metrics for how they assess risk on their loan portfolio are like insufficient. I mean if you're if you're getting a 97 repayment percent repayment rate and the and presumably these clients are not able to access loans through traditional financial channels, traditional lenders, like what is that is that a gap, gap that you're like, oh, right, no, it makes sense and financial institutions can't serve this market because it's too expensive and all the loans are customized and we have to, you know, there's so much, as you say, like hands-on work to be done that it, it won't be served well or, no, once we've proven this model and shown for long enough that you can lend to them, you know, profitably, they should be stepping in to fill that void. Yeah, it's a great question. So my firm belief is that there is a long-term role for a windmill micro lender. And in fact, we should be, there's a, I think that there's more, far more opportunity than just, just serving um, skilled immigrants in Canada. I think there's, there's this opportunity for us to do more and to partner with banks. I think that we are natural partners with banks. And I think the, and the, the most senior bankers that I've talked to agree that this is not a sec, this is not a clientele that they know how to, or can, can make money on it. And the, the role for banks is they have to make their clients profitable. So what they should be doing is supporting a windmill that 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 turns bad clients into good clients, not in trying to um, turn their own systems inside out to be able to do that. Because there will be times when there are there are bright sparks in in our for-profit banks that say, hey, look what windmill's doing. We should be trying to get that business. But um, and there will be, and there we know that there are governments that say, "Hey, we should be trying to incentivize banks to be doing windmills business." But over the long term, my belief is that our clients are going to be served best when there is a dedicated institution that understands this part of the ecosystem, is and serves it really well, and then hands them on to the financial institutions. Because, and that's, I think. My view at this point is that that's the best long-term solution for um, for this sector of the part of the market. Interesting, yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of those other opportunities that you see maybe down the road for how you windmill might expand? Yeah, well, we've been approached by um, by um, parts of government and by um, organizations overseas that are interested in using the windmill model to solve particular um, so solve particularly refugee issues in other parts of the world. For instance, the, um, the Venezuelan migrant crisis in Colombia. Mm -hmm. um, we've been we've been um, mentors and supporters of other organizations, little startup organizations that are doing similar work to us in in um, in the United Kingdom and in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think that there I think there are lots of Lots of groups that in Canada still that are underserved by the financial institutions because they're hard to make money on um, and so are underbanked and that 
you know, as a society, I think we've got fairly unhealthy attitudes towards debt, and we're really good at pushing bad debt that is unhealthy on people, where they're using debt that is going to be, you know, trap them in, in poverty long term. And we're not as good at encouraging people to take on debt that's going to lift them out of poverty long term. So um, I think there's lots of opportunities for us to think about other groups of Canadians that we can help um, lift up, you know, with a with a small with our small interjection of coaching supports and affordable credit um, that we can lift them out and enable them to um, to play important, valuable roles in society and pay more income taxes and mm -hmm. uh, contribute. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, do you are there? Uh, I was going to ask whether like policy and advocacy kind of work is, is within the kind of remit of the things that you're, that you're working on. And, and in particular, are there, like, do you feel that there are kind of government policy that could, uh, you know, better, uh, that could facilitate your work that could help alleviate the problem? Or is that, is that kind of in the realm of what you guys focus on at all? It is not in the realm of what we focus on right now, uh, because again, one of our values is simplicity, and we we think that we there are other organizations that are better positioned to play the role of advocacy. And as a charity, it's really not in our mandate to do that. Um, but at some point, maybe that will that will be added, because certainly we're only a very small part of the problem. You know, there are lots of barriers facing immigrants in terms of um, their, their ability to get into their professions. And, you know, government has a very important role in making sure we're getting those skilled immigrants and, and helping them, um, enabling them to be successful when they get here. Yeah. Okay. So, Claudia, if people wanted to make an investment, uh, that involves basically come directly to Windmill and they can kind of get in touch with you through the website. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And uh, there's, we have a $250,000 minimum investment, but uh, our investors do not have to be accredited investors because we have a not-for-profit exemption. Yeah, that's right. So basically, um, it's, it's, I got familiar with this from my work at World Vision. Uh, if you are um, a not-for-profit or registered charity and your primary business is not raising investment dollars, you can essentially, you're exempted from this requirement that says if, that unless you offer a prospectus for your investment, you have to limit yourselves to only raising capital from accredited investors. That said, I guess with a $250,000 minimum, as, as uh, you probably are dealing with high net worth individuals, which typically qualifies them as accredited investors. Yes, that's right. Okay. And then you also accept donations, uh, issue charitable receipts because you are a registered charity and people can donate again directly to the site if they wanted to. Yes, we love our donors even more than we love our impact investors because right. uh, those are the gifts that keep on giving and we can keep recycling those those dollars out to, out to our clients and when they come back, we'll send them out again. Yeah, I, I always, I've, I've probably said on the podcast before, I'm, I lose track now because I'm kind of two years into doing the, the the podcast and what I've said on what episode. So for the listeners who may be frustrated by it, um, the risk of repeating myself, there is a a group within the impact investment community. It tends to be those that are newer to the to the industry who say, oh, you know, impact investing is going to replace the need for philanthropy. And I, I just think that's precisely wrong. And like, for me, I had always thought of it as, not always when I, maybe when I first came in, I, I don't ever remember saying that, but, um, but I certainly, as I've gotten my head around the space, it feels like the real promise of impact investing is that we use investment dollars to solve problems that can be solved through setting up impact investment through market-based approaches. And that is a subset of all of the problems and challenges in the world. And there are certain challenges and problems that absolutely require cash out the door, like, you know, and take the most obvious examples like uh, disaster relief, where people need food and water immediately, and there's no opportunity to, you know, generate a profit off of that. So if we can, if we can save our, our most precious dollars, the grant capital, the donations for the things that really can't be solved through an investment, what a, what a win, right? Like... <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, I was enjoying one of your um, one of your recent podcasts on on blended finance, and yeah. it's that marriage between uh, philanthropists and impact investors that I think can really um, produce fantastic results, and it's great to see that work being done. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you on that note, and you may not have a need for it, because as you say, you've already kind of have the, the right balance between your ability to deploy the capital and the amount of capital that's coming in through the investments. But um, is that, a, have you ever thought about engaging or have you ever had conversations with the government at any level around um, uh, kind of blended finance transactions where they're providing some sort of, you know, guarantee on the investment or, you know? Yes, we are, we are, <clears throat> we are actively engaging government oh, in awesome. uh, conversations about, uh, about that. So we've had government, um, both the federal government and Alberta and Ontario are all supporters of ours through grants. Um, and we're in conversations with them around, around other kinds of um, more creative ways that we can structure uh, relationships to achieve the goals that they're looking to achieve. Um, imagine they would just love the work that, that you're doing. I mean, I couldn't imagine a, a government not being really excited about supporting and being able to like tout the fact that they support this type of thing, which is just like, there's so few people who, who, who wouldn't get excited about this type of thing because it's just like, you know, not every, not every single thing that, 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 that is positive, you know, that intends some sort of positive impact has everybody aligned behind it. But you know, supporting people who have the, the the education and the qualifications and there's these hiccups preventing them from realizing their potential. Just like there's so few people who would ever, you know, not be, get behind that. It's such a great story. Um, so Thank I you. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of the things that I love about Windmill is it attracts people from the from the left and the yeah. right in right. equal measure, whether you're in this for social justice and, um, you know, improving the li- lives of, uh, of racialized Canadians, of which probably more than 90% of our, our portfolio is, or whether you come from the free market, right. you know, economic, um, fiscal conservative, and you, you don't want um, government wasting dollars on people living on, you know, using, taking advantage of the social safety net. You want to improve our economy. You want to um, help people get to work. It's, uh, right. it, it, there's something in it for everybody, I think. Yeah. So like this to me is one of those, those gaps that like, oh, that one we just, we need to get rid of that problem because there's like it's it it's such a solvable problem and it's and the then the benefits to the you know the, the country writ large are so big it's just oh let's get rid of let's end that problem and everyone can kind of agree on that and then we can debate about where we go from from there but that just seems like a really uncontroversial um <laughs> area Yes, and our returns to on uh, we've had studies done that have shown that the return to government on and on a grant to windmill is thirty eight dollars for every dollar spent on windmill oh, wow. comes back and and those those studies are incredibly conservative in that they only look at the gains on income taxes they don't look at the gains Ooh. on on you know on the sales taxes or on savings to social spending that right. uh, the windmill produces so. Um, we hope that governments will will agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Well, that's but really when I, could I just go back and uh, while we've been lucky at this point to have been able to raise the amount through our community bonds that we that has been um, in line with what we've needed. That is not to say that we right. won't need a lot more. So we really welcome any interest from from your listeners in our community bond because we would we would you know if we had more money um, it, to lend out we could for sure find other other populations that that might be able to use it. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you clarified that point. I mean, it, to what you'd said earlier in the conversation, it, it's a balancing act, right? So it's, we, we can't just take in $50 million tomorrow, but the as we grow and we know that the source, you know, and we build our capacity to deliver that, they just have to rise together, but you you want them rising. <laughs> and Absolutely. You want to continue to take in more capital. So don't take that as a sign from me that Windmill does not need more capital. Uh, they do right. want more investment and need it to grow. So <laughs> I'm glad you clarified. Thank you. Um, well, listen, that's really great. In the, in the interest of time, I, I'll, we'll kind of wind it down here. Is there anything else that you wanted to maybe mention that I, I didn't touch on that is kind of interesting or you just want people to know? Uh, sure. One more. One thing is that we are really excited this month to be um, to be branching out a little bit, and that we're doing a partnership with a new charity that's called Talent Beyond Boundaries that was founded in the U.S. but is working here in Canada. And Talent Beyond Boundaries is looking to help 
help skilled refugees that are stuck in refugee camps get hired in places like Canada and Australia by employers that have can't hire from within the Canadian population. So they're looking for those skills outside Canada. Mm. And so where Windmill is going to be playing a role in terms of providing the finances to help those refugees get from the refugee camp to that that first salary where they can, you know, where they can start earning money in Canada. But there's a gap there to pay for the transportation, um, immigration costs, first and last month's rent when they arrive, those kinds of things. And so we're we're very excited to be um, providing our first loans this month for those resettlement loans to to refu- to skilled refugees coming in, um, and so we hope that's another going to be another growing pool of of clients when uh, the pandemic eases up and we're able to get um, a, a, you know more of a flow of immigrants and refugees coming back into Canada again. Yeah. Do you know what that uh, offhand? Do you happen to know what the kind of immigration numbers have dropped to through the pandemic, or the, those numbers even out? Oh, um, yeah, I know that they were something like uh, they were a small fraction of what they were supposed to be in in the second quarter. So April to April to June. Mm. Um, I don't have those numbers off the top mm. of my head, but I have access to them. No, so it's OK. I could look it's those up and give them more out of personal curiosity. I've been curious what what how much that's been impacted. I imagine dramatically. It's been it's been a dramatic impact. But I think there's there's lots of lots of pressure on the government to try and get those numbers back up as soon as possible because everybody recognizes that our economic growth is dependent on on continuing to see skilled immigrants come in, particularly when birth rates continue to be so low. Yeah, potentially our real estate markets <laughs> too. Um, yeah. yeah, no, that's that's great. Well, listen, Claudia, thank you so much for taking the time. This is really interesting. I'm going to link in the show notes to uh, Windmill's uh, website. So if anybody wants to click through and support, uh, get to know more about the, the organization. But um, thanks a lot. This has been really interesting. Good luck with everything. And we'll have to have you on again sometime in the in the future and, and hear how the, the path to 10xing um, the, the loan book is, has been going. Great. Thank you so much. And thanks for doing this work on behalf of all of us in the sector, David. It's really great. Oh, it's no, it my pleasure. I love doing it. And um, yeah, I appreciate it. So thank you. All right. Until next time. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.